0: And welcome to episode 150 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we tried to shine a light on something ominously referred to as shadow IT. In this episode, we turn to how the human element continues to play an important role in legal technology and gives many people concern whether lawyers in the legal profession will even make it to the future. Tom, what's on our agenda
1: for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about whether the, uh, I guess we'll call human barriers to lawyers adopting legal technology are insurmountable or whether there's something we can do about that. In our second segment, we'll announce a survey for our podcast listeners. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots. That one tip, website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But uh, for our first segment, we're asking an interesting question, which is, are the human barriers to accepting and using legal technology something that can reasonably be overcome? Uh, in a recent post on their blog, At the Intersection, Pam Woldow and Doug Richardson, who, by the way, wrote a great, very accessible book for the ABA on legal project management for lawyers. They share their thoughts after attending a recent law firm management conference in Sydney. Uh, all the way on the other side of the world, the blog post, I think, raises some very important issues, issues that we cover from time to time on this podcast. Uh, and we thought that the topic deserves a, a little bit of a wider discussion than it seems to be getting. Although I did see some tweets about it today before we, before we went to air. As we recorded this podcast, though, there still aren't any comments on the post. Dennis, what were you thinking? And why did you want to focus on this topic for this episode of the podcast?
0: Well, I think it really does weigh some important questions in, in a very interesting way um, and kind of highlights some, some key points and collects those all in one place. So that's that's obviously one aspect of it. But I think the other thing that was significant to me was I, I was thinking back to the early days of blogging when a, a post like this would have gotten all kinds of comments and people doing their own posts on their own blogs. Um, and and this one really didn't seem to be getting a, a lot of, of traction. And and so it sort of to me raises the question of where does important discussion about legal technology actually occur today. And so I thought maybe we, Tom we should use the podcast as a way to draw attention to this post and 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 some of the, the issues uh, that they raise. And and I I thought the, the questions they raise are, are really important. And they both look to the past and learnings that we can have from the past. And they look to the future. And as you say, are there some things about the way lawyers approach technology that make it exceptionally difficult for lawyers? And are those barriers in a way something that we can
1: we can move past? I agree that there hasn't been a lot of, of response that I've seen to it. Uh, but then again, I, I will say that I've been noticing there has been kind of an uptick lately on articles that discuss uh, whether lawyers should have a certain amount of technology knowledge. I think we've seen in the past couple of weeks a – I would say a, a, a decent increase in the number of articles and posts and tweets about whether or not uh, there's a, a – a, Ethical obligation to know about technology, and I know that 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 our friend Bob Ambroji posted about uh, about the states that have adopted the ABA model rule, and so there's been that discussion about does it make sense that there's an ethical obligation to understand technology? And I sort of see that these topics go hand in hand. I see that they i they, they make sense that that uh, there are a lot of lawyers out there who I think still treat the law as a profession and not as a business. And for some reason that, travels along to technology as well I'm really interested to know um, if there's a generational issue here I'm really interested to know if these are lawyers who are who have been practicing for a long period of time or these are younger lawyers who are mentioned in the post that that refused or were uncomfortable with the technology that was given to them no matter no matter how advanced the technology was no matter how much information that it could give the lawyers in the law firm I guess I have to say I'm not Totally surprised. I want to say that that's really not been anything for me anyway that's been different since I really started getting interested in legal technology. I just sort of think that lawyers in general uh, have better fish to fry and would rather have somebody else take care of the technology for them. That's, that's I know, a cynical approach, but I think that there's, that's what I would think would be the majority of lawyers uh, at least. And maybe um, if I'm, I don't know if this is an unfair statement or not, but my guess is, is that Pam and Doug, when they talk about firms that are dealing with legal pro- project management, they're talking about larger firms. Larger firms would be more interested in looking at these dashboards that, that aggregate all sorts of information. Um, they're not, talking about solo and small firms that probably are using more technology than some of the lawyers in the big firms are using anyway, because IT uh, they're used to having IT provide everything for them or deal with that. So I've kind of been rambling on about this a little bit. I guess I'm just not surprised to see something like this because it's really nothing new to me. On the one hand, Tom, I think you're
0: right. This is something that we've talked about for a long time. A lot of people have. But I, I think what's sort of interesting in this article to me is that it raises the the more fundamental question is, is can lawyers move past this? Are, are sort of some of the things that we see so fundamental and so problematic that lawyers just can't get past them to implement new technology. And so so one of the premises of the article, I, th- I think, is that looking at these sort of top of the line, great technology implications that could do almost anything that a, a lawyer could imagine, and then basically no adoption and not just negative attitudes toward them, but people just didn't want to deal with them at all. And, and so that's, that to me is sort of the interesting piece of this, is how, how fundamental is this And does it really go across the board? Are there just pockets of exceptions? Or is there a gap here between what the technology is, how lawyers see it, or what the technologists see the technology as being able to do and how it just doesn't match what what lawyers want? So I think there's a lot to discuss here. And so I, I guess... For me, this sort of money quote from, from the Post was uh, talking about one of these elaborate systems that should have done everything that the lawyers asked for it to do, and it, it just didn't work. And so the, the, uh, question, the question was asked is, is, what is it going to take to get these people to use this tool? And the answer was, I could say that it's what's needed is a simple point-and-click interface, but even that's probably too much tech speak. What our (laughs) lawyers tell me is that the whole thing has to be really simple and really intuitive to use. One keystroke, maximum two, anything more than that, and you've lost them. And... I think that attitude and that approach is is really common, which always surprised me because to me, lawyers take on really uh, sophisticated problems, sophisticated issues, multiple step things. But when it comes to technology, they want something that's just unbelievably
1: s- simple that, that really doesn't exist. You know, I talk about how I think that this is not something that's new or unusual. Um, And now I'm going to expand on that. And I'm going to say that I don't think that this is unique to lawyers. I think that to a certain extent, and we always talk about how lawyers um, lag behind other industries and adopting things. And I think that may be true. But I will say that I deal with a lot of people who Need technology to be easy for them to do their job. People are busy. They have a lot of stuff to do. I work with a lot of companies who, and for them, their major records and information problem is email. It's probably most of the people listening out there's major problem is email because let's face it, email has become your filing cabinet. It's what you use to go and keep all of your information. It really shouldn't be that way. And so we come into a company and we find, we say, okay, we're going to try to move stuff out of email so that you're not using it there. You're using it in better places where it can be retained for the right amount of time, where it could be managed so that legal holds can be applied. To it. Um, and, and we want you to, to, to start dealing with email in a more responsible way. And what they tell us is, is that if it takes us longer than two to three seconds to make a decision about what to do with the email, we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna make that decision because it has to be simple. We want an easy button for dealing with this. And I think that you're right. I think that this post from for me this comes up to say, why? What's the reason for this? I think that in this in the sense of my client. And the people that I deal with who, have, who, who are dealing with email, it's because they're so busy anyway, they don't have time to let technology come in and make them less productive. Technology is supposed to make them more productive, and if it doesn't, then something's failing. And I wonder how much part of that is what we're seeing the lawyers say that, you know, lawyers are busy and they want to be able to see things, but if it's not that one or two clicks, then they're wasting their time doing something like that.
0: Yeah, and that whole busyness thing is is a big thing, and and people who aren't lawyers really hate the way lawyers are always talking about how busy they are, as if no one no one else is. And so, so I think that to me, that's I, I don't even buy that excuse anymore. I, I mean, a lot of times I always a joke that. I used to work with litigators who spent so much time telling me how busy they were. I wasn't sure they had enough time to do any work because all they did was talk about how much work they had to do. So you always have time to do this stuff. And I I think when you say, I just need one button, it needs to be intuitive. And the fact is, there's no one size fits all you know, you got to think through what it is that you want. And If you don't participate in the process, I think that you can say, "Oh, this is great. I want these things, and I need to have like one, one keystroke, one button." And if that's not exactly the button you wanted, then, um, as they say, some of these big projects just end up as a pile of magnificent junk after time. So I, I think that uh, you know, part of this what they get to in the article is how lawyers don't get involved in designing what they want, partially because they can't really surface and articulate what it is that, that they really want at the beginning. And so they're presented with something at the end that all they can say is it's not easy enough when it's probably not the easiness. It's just that it doesn't, they don't want to put the effort into it.
1: Well, I agree. But I, I think that we've Probably have to agree to disagree on the whole busyness thing because one thing that I recommend and something that we do frequently is I mean part of part of adopting new technologies or even using something new in your group that deals with technology often depends on good and I've said it before in many podcasts good change management good changing behavior um, through communications of support and, uh, from both the top down and the bottom up that say that this is a good tool. This is going to help you out. And part of good change management is going to the end user and showing them examples and saying, tell us what's easier. Tell us what you like about this uh, user interface. Tell us what you like about this one. Um, And I will say that there have been many times where well-meaning IT or uh, other litigation technology or legal technology departments and firms or companies have decided to roll things out with very little user input and I think that's another reason I think that's I think you're right that, that that's a reason why things fail is that if you don't get input from the user whether you're a lawyer or whether you're just a regular employee um, then you run a real risk that people don't want to want to use the uh, the tools that you have because it just doesn't make sense to them because you didn't take their concerns into consideration when you were rolling it out.
0: Right, and I, th- I think Tommy, you know, you and I see a bunch of new legal software all the time every year and there are times within a few minutes you can see just a couple of things where you go, oh, this is not going to work. Lawyers are not going to like this. You know, it could be naming conventions, it could be placement of things. I mean, it sort of comes down to usability and and a focus on the user experience and 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 what people want. But um, you can sometimes see that. So there is an aspect of that that comes into things. But there are user experience experts. There are ways to, to get involved in these things where changes can be made. So lawyers step too far back. And then I mean, there's a couple things that they talk about in the article, too, that that uh, I, I, I thought were interesting along those lines. Because there, they did mention that the gripes of lawyers focus on utility, so what good does it do, and usability, like how easy it is to use. And so, whether it's, you know, people say it has too many bells and whistles, it takes too long to learn, which means it takes more than 10 seconds, um, it's too hard to use because I have to do something different than what, I, what I'm what i used to, you, you know, I, all those things come into play. Um, and then also, I think that there is that fundamental tension we've seen uh, since the beginning of technology for lawyers is, is that the, the systems are sold on you know, increasing productivity and efficiency don't go over well when your job is is sort of to maximize billable hours.
1: Yeah. And and as we talk about this, I am reminded of conversations that we've had in really recent podcasts um, uh, about something that's that's more basic to a, a firm or to a business than these dashboards are. I think what's interesting is we've been, you know, the blog post is really talking about just something as simple as a, as a dashboard. A dashboard is really just a, a layout of information about how the firm is doing in a particular area or metrics from uh, performance of the lawyers or billables and collections of the company. And it's really just a layout and hearing that that's not simple enough really is kind of interesting to me, but let's boil it down to something more basic. And that's Microsoft Word. Is that we hear time and time again that people don't like to use Word, even the ones who have to use it, they don't like it. The most common complaints are that it has too many bells and whistles and that it's too hard to use. Uh, the same exact complaint we're seeing about the dashboards in this blog post. But you and I both have friends. We both n- n- fr- have friends who regularly teach lawyers to use Word that they say that given the right amount of training and the, the correct training, lawyers will find that those features are not that overwhelming. They're not that confusing. They can learn to be productive when they create documents and, and actually use the tool in the way that it's supposed to be kept. And so does this mean that this is a, a, a training issue? Is that is that as simple as that? I know that it's not, but it seems like um, when we when we talk about tools that lawyers complain about not being easy, we've seen that training can help address that issue.
0: Right. Well, I, I think that's one side of it. But I, I think the more interesting thing to me and sort of what this article uh, touches on are Business and practice tools, you know, where you say, I would like to be able to find out this information. I would like to have, uh, you know, a law has changed. I'm going to require to be required to make changes in a bunch of contracts. I would like to be able to punch that up. It's the same thing sort of. Business people would like to get from from their lawyers. So, analytical tools, things that tell me, you know, what the the, the current value of a case I'm working on, uh, if a settlement offer has come in, is it realistic or not, based on on what I know about the case and the hours in. Those sorts of tools, I think, are the the things that it really puzzles me that that lawyers aren't a, attracted to. So I think I think you're right, Tom. There's a training thing, but it's also, you know, you got to be able to step back and say, well, what is it that I actually want? And then is that possible? And today, often that, that really is possible. You just got to ask for it.
1: Yeah, I think that to a certain extent, um, there's also an issue of what kind of support and or pressure you may get within the company for a tool like this. And I, I think that that support and or pressure can come from both directions. It can come from the top, it can come from the bottom. And and frankly, I think that, um, that it, it's important to come from both directions. The user of that technology needs to understand, one, why the technology is important, and two, how it's going to help them do their job better, and three, probably – most important, it's not going to be so hard to use that it measurably reduces their ability to do the work that they think is more important and the stuff that they feel like they need to get done anyway. And I I think that part of that support has a couple of different elements. And one of them is um, pilot testers from the user group, people who can come in and make sure the features make sense to the mind of the person who's using it. Lawyers, who are going to look at that dashboard need to look at the tool ahead of time and and but frankly as i'm saying this i'm realizing that the blog post is saying that there were even people who tested it and they still didn't like it so i'm not even sure that's the answer having champions uh, along the way finding people within the group who they've tested it or they've tried it or they're the super users the people who know how to use it so they can help the others, they can say, hey, look, if you just give it a chance, it's really something good. But um, I usually find that in a company, especially the companies we work with, if there's not top-down support from the executives saying, this is important to us, we really expect that you would do this, Um, we think it's important and you need to do this because we think it's important, I think that's a really critical part. Now, if we're talking about just a dashboard, then maybe the top is not so high up. But having some support from people who, you know, work for the people who refuse to use something, or I mean, who work, for, who manage the people who are supposed to use it, might make a difference. I'm I'm kind of grasping at straws here because it really is a mystery to me why even even with some of these things, lawyers still refuse to to use the technology. And so maybe I sometimes find myself find ourselves back. The beginning of this discussion without a real good answer.
0: And I think that people don't always appreciate how even a few lawyers who decide not to participate in a system can utterly destroy the the utility of that system. And a lot of times there's no consequence for that. And people don't feel you can force people into, into systems. But you have to look at those things. Tom, there there's sort of two quotes from this article that, that I want to highlight before we, we exit this segment. But the one I like says, in one sense, the gulf between lawyers and, or a firm's lawyers and its IT people is ironic. In some ways, lawyers and IT experts are similar animals. And one might expect more mutual respect from people whose roles are predicated on mastery of various types of subject matter expertise and who all are supposedly concerned with optimizing the performance of the firm. And so I think there is this sort of tension and and maybe competition between sort of high priests who have one type of specialized knowledge and high priests who have another type of specialized knowledge and there's a a jealousy and, and not a good way to go between. Them, which I, I think sort of the role that you and I and others we know play is, is that ability to go back and forth between the two camps, which I, I think can be incredibly helpful. And then the other quote I like is that it says, Many lawyers tell us that efforts to superimpose, indeed to press fit, work process software upon their professional wisdom and legal judgment is kind of insulting. Those people. Don't really understand what we do, they say. They want to digitize and commoditize and quantify everything. And so, That's the notion of profession versus business and what I've called lawyer exceptionalism, where lawyers tend to think that everything we do is different somehow and not focus on what really is different. So there's a lot of things we do from running meetings to to making copies to doing various processes that really are, you know, commoditized and there's there's nothing that's that unique about what what we do and and there are other things that can be digitized to free us up to do what we do that's really creative and and to free up time for us to think and and do those things and not always fall back on the, the we're so so busy excuse so i think that both of those those quotes are, are, are really worth discussing by people and that's that's part of the reason i found this article so interesting
1: well, and I think that it all boils down to the fact that many lawyers still view the law that as a profession and not as a business. And I think that to move forward on this argument, I think that there needs to be um, – a recognition that it can be both at the same time, that they need to be able to hold both ideas in their minds because if they don't, I think that we talk about the future of law and the commoditization of the law, it's already happening. So uh, it, it's not a matter of whether or not these people are, who don't understand our business are trying to, to make us do something. It's already happening. And I, I really think that that's, um, that's one of the things that it's going to take To do this, I mean, I I think that there's going to be pressure from both sides to uh, to to address uh, lawyers who won't use technology the way that they probably should. One is lawyers who are starting to understand, who are starting to use technology in better ways as they become more successful. At least I hope they become more successful. Um, Lawyers who aren't using technology begin to learn by example, and then I think you and I, you talk about this all the time, is the client side of the business um, will do like it's always done. force lawyers to change the way they do business. Lawyers were forced to use email. They didn't want to use email until clients demanded it. Lawyers use WordPerfect until all their clients moved over to Microsoft Word and forced their lawyers to move to Microsoft Word. Uh, Those are easy and kind of basic examples, but I really think that that has something to do with it. And as... As clients move to better ways to deal with things and and talk about me being more efficient and we start seeing terms like lean and six sigma and and all these other tools being used in law firms nowadays, I think it's just a matter of time before it starts to take on. But then again, that's a $64,000 question for me. I'm I'm just not convinced that it's going to be a fast uh, evolution or that it's going to happen for everybody at all. Yeah, I I think you're right about that. But when I I think about the way I look at technology these days, and I
0: say I do want to digitize and commoditize um, and get away from the stuff that's repetitive and boring and doesn't allow me to be creative and bring the highest value that I can bring to to problem solving and, and the other things that I do. So I'm all in favor of technology that that improves that, and, it, and, and that's why I'm always baffled when lawyers want to protect everything that they do um, as being unique when really I, all I want is to eliminate the boring stuff let the computers <laughs> do what the computers do best and let me as a human do what I do best as a human and bring the most value and I, I think that's that's an easy ask for me to want to make and, and that influences a lot of my
1: thinking about technology these days before we move on to our next segment let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor Looking for a process server you can trust?
0: ServNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servnow.com.
1: We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm
0: Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. I noticed recently that a number of podcasts and blogs I frequent were either doing or planning to do surveys. Well, we wanted to have another Q&A podcast episode on the Kennedy Mile Report and haven't really found a great way to make it easy for our listeners to send us questions. And we also wanted to start getting ideas for upcoming podcast topics on a regular basis. So I suggest the time that this was the perfect time for this podcast to conduct its own survey and sort of go along with the flow of everybody else and and do that. And that we should get started on that right away. So in the case of my ideas like this one, when I say we should do this, that usually means Tom is what I mean by we. So, Tom, what do we have in mind for a survey and what do you have and do you have something
1: to announce yet? Generally, what I like about this we is that you kind of have to go along with what I say uh, because uh, it's if you don't go along with it, then we, we really never get anywhere. Um, I think the obvious first choice for communicating with listeners is social media. We've tried that. I have to confess, I think we both, Dennis, have to confess that our success in communicating with listeners on Twitter or other social media outlets has not been as successful as we would like it to be. Maybe we're just not using the tools the way that we should, um, or maybe none of our listeners follow us on Twitter. Um, I don't think that's true, but but I think our public requests for information have rarely yielded anything useful or interesting. And so I think there's probably a lesson in there about how we could better be using social media, but that sounds like a good idea for a future episode topic. So I guess instead, let's talk briefly about survey tools. Uh, There are a number of different survey tools that are out there, but for me, the most important requirement of a survey tool is that it be free. And the reason is, is that we just don't do surveys enough to make it worthwhile to pay for it on a regular basis. My company does have an account with SurveyMonkey. We do quite a lot of surveys with our clients, so that makes sense to have something that you're paying for on a regular basis. But frankly, for my and Dennis' purpose, free to me is the key feature is it needs to be something that we don't have to pay for, but still has a reasonable amount of power. The problem there is that the freemium tools have very basic free services. So I can send out a 10-question survey for free on SurveyMonkey, and I think I can get back 100 responses. And frankly, as far as I'm concerned, Dennis, 100 responses would be great if we got that. But it is limited in what we could get. If we instead want to pay, I think, something like 26 bucks a month, we get unlimited numbers of questions, unlimited responses. Um, So it's limited in what you can do for free. And it really doesn't give you any way to export your information. Most of those freemium tools don't really allow for that to happen. You know, I've actually had more luck in the past with Google. Google Forms provides a very simple way to create your survey there for free. I've done a number of them there. Um, They export their information directly into a Google spreadsheet. uh, So it's easy to get the information. It's easy to analyze it. And it works good enough. It's a good enough solution. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It's pretty basic. SurveyMonkey lets you customize your questions so you can have, you know, logic where if you answer a question a certain way, it takes you to a certain question. The Google is a much dumber, just linear survey that goes from question to question to question. But that said, that may be all you need in a particular survey. I plan to mention some free tools in the show notes, but just a quick search for free survey tools showed that they're all over the place. So uh, take a look at some of the ones we mentioned in the show notes and, and see if that happens to work for you. Dennis, I don't know if you did any research or if you've got anything on the survey tools, but uh, kind of what are you thinking after hearing my the results of my research? It won't surprise you to learn that my research was done by asking you the question.
0: But, you know, I, as you were talking, I was struck by the, the idea that uh, – there are a lot of we're always talking about client surveys and and the things that lawyers and firms should do to find out what's on their clients' minds and so these tools you know our problem is actually a pretty common problem and so the solutions out there become interesting in a number a number of ways so the sort of simple survey tools I know you've done the, the Google approach and, and I think that works well and and this really does seem like a place where good enough is is the way to go, so. I sort of say there's probably you can probably experiment with some different tools. You know, if if you try something and you get more than a hundred responses, well, then maybe it's worth the the uh, the twenty six dollars. Or you to find something with a little bit of higher. If you try something for free and you only get fifty responses, then obviously it it was enough for for what you needed. So I think the tools are out there, and then and and then you get to the to me sort of the hardest part of it, which is figuring out what questions you really want to ask and how to how to do those, but you can always experiment with that. And then the other thing, which seems like a bit of a difficulty, is to say, how do I get word of the survey out? And maybe that's where social media, blogs, the, our podcasts, that sort of thing, actually become more useful than using social media to say, like, hey, do you have a question for the podcast or something like that? If we say, here's a link to our survey, help us out, maybe that's a much more effective use of social media than to say, hey, email us with with your questions. So just some thoughts. But I I think that the survey tools could be something, especially uh, smaller firms or anybody who just wants to get a little bit of opinion from uh, people they work with, you know, to use and, and try. Now it's time for our parting shots, at
1: one tip, website, or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends.
0: Tom, take it away.
1: So, Dennis, as you know, I have been using the uh, Surface Pro 3 from uh, Microsoft since January. I love it. It has replaced my laptop, and I really enjoy working with it. Uh, it, it it goes with me wherever I, whenever I go to work. Uh, this past week, Microsoft unveiled its Surface 3. Not sure I like the way that they've made a Surface Pro 3 and a Surface 3, and the Surface 3 came out after the Surface Pro 3, uh, but I'm not going to argue about that. Um, it is lighter, smaller thinner. A little bit less powerful, not quite the same resolution of the screen, but it runs full Windows. It is the closest thing that you will get to having, uh, I, I don't like to use the word iPad killer, but if you're looking for a laptop replacement in a tablet, I think that it comes a lot closer these days to what the iPad's doing. I know people will shriek in horror that Tom is recommending a Windows device over a, uh, an iPad. I still love my iPad and I think it has its place, but I think those of us who are living in the Windows world and who need to work on office tools and who need to work in other areas, I think will be very, very pleasantly surprised uh, by the Surface 3. It's also iPad prices, so it starts at $499 and goes up to, I think, 6 or 799 which is, you know, very comparable to what we're getting on the iPad. And did I mention that it runs full Windows? It's, a, I think, a great option if you're looking for something a little bit smaller. Uh, give it a look. It's the uh, Windows or Microsoft Surface 3 tablet. Sorry, Tom, I I fainted
0: when you talked about the Windows tablets in comparison to the iPad, but I've regained my composure. And and so I have two things. So one is probably something that I admit that people won't use the second this podcast ends. But recently I took a trip to Graz, Austria, which I loved, and stayed at a place called the Schlossberg Hotel there, which is this sort of great hotel. It's sort of an older classic style, lots of artwork, uh, fabulous breakfast, terraces that you could walk out on on a hill above the hotel, and just the nicest staff in the world. So if you're in Graz, which I Thoroughly recommend, and you want to find a hotel that certainly was one of the top hotel experiences I've ever had. the The Schlossberg Hotel in Graz, Austria. Uh, like I said, probably not something you use the second. This podcast ends, but keep it in mind. the The one I the thing I'm going to suggest, though, as a, also as a parting shot, is the tech show app. ABA Tech Show is coming up here in about a week or so from when we record this. There's an app that goes with it. It's uh, I was playing with it and. Uh, What I liked was uh, it had everything in one place. I could kind of pre-select the sessions I wanted to go to, kind of favorite them. And then I have a nice list of everything that I think I might attend. So when I'm talking probably to one of our listeners and going past the time the session starts, I'll know exactly the session that I plan to go to that I'm missing so I can (laughs) spend more time talking to people.
1: Well, that's a real uh, endorsement uh, for that. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at TKMReport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at TKMReport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile or Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to The Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal
0: technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast, and keep your eyes out for our upcoming survey. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to The Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report only on the Legal Talk Network.